Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday session. Uh, this has been a, a routine that we've had now for about nine months. It's incredible how time has passed. And, uh, you know, some great news. I think John's going to share some of this. The, the vaccine, the Pfizer product, the mRNA vaccine, was, uh, was recommended by the FDA committee, and hopefully the FDA will follow suit and, and, and give uh, emergency authorization for this product, which we're all waiting for. And hopefully Moderna will follow soon after. Uh, we will begin uh, vaccination here at Connecticut Children's for those deemed to be within that CDC high category group uh, and uh, very shortly, uh, probably around the 17th, uh, which is a week from uh, about a week from today. And uh, so more, more information coming through for all of you who are team members uh, as part of the Connecticut Children's family and others. And uh, the good news, again, for all for all of you who are healthcare providers, that you will be vaccinated over the next two, three months. Uh, there are enough. There's enough vaccine for for everyone that is that is within that category of a healthcare team member. It's going to be very very important for keep you safe. Uh, the pandemic continues to rage. I think John will mention this. Uh, I was just looking at the Hopkins site. 15.6 million cases in the U.S. and and very sadly we are approaching uh, 300,000 deaths. Uh, uh, there was a what uh, the CDC former CDC director mentioned that we'll probably get we'll probably have a 9/11. Uh, type numbers for the next uh, two months on every single day, about 3,000 people. Uh, so you have to be careful, you know, just pay attention, do what you need to be doing. You have to carry through all this time and uh, we'll, we'll make it through. Today we have John with his, with his great update. Um, and we're also very lucky that we have uh, one of our neuropsychologists who is part of Connecticut Children's, uh, Lauren uh, Air Volta, she, the Volta I've been told is Italian. I think Air Volta is also a vintage wine from some part of Italy. She'll tell us from where, um, just to bring us some really, really important uh, information about physician wellness, which is such an important piece of, uh, of information and a topic that we need to pay attention to. So welcome to our uh, Friday session. Uh, all of you uh, colleagues in Danbury, Norwalk, uh, I'm glad you're able to join us also for Grand Rounds. And we'll pass it on to John to give us the update. John? John, are, can you hear us? Uh, can you guys hear and see me? Yeah, we hear you now. All right. Go ahead. All right. Uh, welcome, people and providers in Connecticut, whoever else is tuning in in Massachusetts and uh, the New England area and from some other states as well. Um, it's my privilege to be here today. Um, it's a busy time, and I'm going to try to cover as much as I can in our time, and hopefully we'll have time for questions. Now, this is where we are in winter of 2020. We are in a five-alarm fire in this country. Uh, anyone who denies it is not facing reality. However, that fire hose is indicative that we now are beginning to have the tools to fight this fire effectively. We're gonna talk about that in a moment. Uh, next slide. And I think we can probably say by summer of 2021, we will be in a situation where we will have this under control. It won't be done. We'll have probably two or three vaccines. You can see two fire hoses there. Uh, and um, I think by summer of 2020, we'll be in a much, much better place. But we have hard work to do to get there. Next. So as predicted, and remember, this is a mathematical exercise and has been from day one. It has never been a political exercise. It has been mathematical. 
you can clearly see that's Thanksgiving is the little yellow line and three weeks, two weeks after an enormous surge. And so we are now well above 200,000 new cases a day in the United States. The death rate, as Juan mentioned, two to 3,000 a day. It's one nine eleven every day. Um, I will be frank and say we did not have to be here and this is not where we should be. Uh, we are an advanced, uh, highly talented country and uh, if we had acted with unity, I'm not saying it would be perfect, but I do not think we would be the worst in the world, which is where we are today. Next. The hospitalizations we need to watch very carefully. This is an unsustainable increase in national hospitalizations. We will not be able to sustain this. Every bed will be filled and every ICU will be filled. So um, as uh, the new administration looks at this, there are going to need to be national strategies to manage this. It is not a sustainable curve for hospitalizations and can lead, if we don't get our arms around this, could lead to a calamity. We need to be very frank about that. Next. Connecticut is not in good shape. Uh, these are the average daily cases per 100,000. By the way, they change every day. They go up every day. So it's a day old. We're at 9% test positivity, which is enormous. This looks like that Iowa picture I showed you a couple month or so ago when Iowa was taking off. In my opinion, um, we are going to need to move to a modified shutdown environment to get this under control so that our beds and ICUs are not filled. I, I just don't see any way. It's pure mathematics. Uh, people in buildings together are infecting each other. So we are going to need to get this under control, but we are not on that trajectory currently. Next. Now, um, we have more cases per day in Connecticut than in the first wave. Um, you know, some, we had 4,000 one day. It's up in the thousands. Uh, and again, um, if only a small percent of these are hospitalized, it's still a large number. And that's the problem. The math, when you look at this, shows you that you will fill your ICU beds at a certain point. You can calculate it. So we are going to need to be more aggressive in reducing the exposure person to person of people in public. It's just factual. Next. This is the hospitalizations in Connecticut. It's at 1200, probably above that now. And uh, we're not at the peak that we were. Um, I think we're handling it better now, um, which is good news. Um, keeping people out of the hospital, people who are in the hospital are doing better. But that said, we will consume all our beds. So this trajectory cannot be sustained and we need to work hard to get it under control. Next. Massachusetts uh, has some problems too and there are behemoth to the north. You know, they have six, seven million people, twice our population. And you can see the Springfield corridor is particularly tough, which, and that interstate goes right into Connecticut and then up north. But the rural areas are getting hit now in Massachusetts. And this is true in Connecticut. You'll notice Litchfield in my previous slide was a hotbed now. That did not happen first wave. So our rural areas are now getting hit. Ditto in Massachusetts. I would suggest staying away from Nantucket right now with 202 new cases per 100,000. It's just astronomical. So, um, you know, we have some challenges and, and uh, we are gonna need to watch this in my view we probably need a New England regional plan of modified shutdown to, to really squash this. I'm not sure that's gonna happen, uh, but I'll show you some more data. Next. Um, in Berkshire County, where I live, which is an hour north, um, we have 30 dead in one building in 10 days. 
it's quite remarkable. I'm not sure in the history of the county, which only has 100,000 people, that there have been that many dead. And even in the Civil War, I'm not sure that many people were killed in, in 10 days. So uh, it's quite remarkable. And, and um, I, you know, I guess we become inured uh, to these numbers. But I did look at the, ob the obits in the, the Berkshire paper, just full of, you know, the paper's full of obituaries every day. And I read one of them, and it was a woman who was 90 who was apparently one of the first uh, Rensselaer Polytech graduates in the history, of first female graduate in biochemist, and uh, just an incredible life. And so um, these are all people. And, uh, and uh, I think, unfortunately, as a country, we, we've become strangely inured to this. Next. Um, Rhode Island, uh, remember, uh, we, the South Dakota, North Dakota used to be the worst, but you'll see South and North Dakota are still very bad, but their increases are now, have been knocked down. I think enough people get it. And uh, uh, there was an excellent article in South, about South Dakota and a woman in a town who uh, was very conservative, but realized that people were dying and has championed wearing masks in her town. And she's brought the epidemic under control in that town. So I think we're starting to see glimmers of changes of behavior in the upper Midwest. Rhode Island is in terrible shape and uh, it's not exactly clear why, but it is. Next slide. And uh, you can go, yeah, and this is Rhode Island. Um, one in 16 people in the state are infected and one out of 700 have died in Rhode Island. It's just remarkable. Um, so uh, travel for the holidays. Here's my, seriously, um, Reasons not to travel, prevent yourself from getting sick, prevent your family from getting sick, prevent your neighbor from getting sick, keep the hospital workforce and your team intact. We don't have big benches anymore. Preserve hospital and ICU beds for people who really need it and save someone's life. So I, I in my mind, um, cancel your travel plans, stay at home, hunker down. It's time for us to really take this seriously. Next. Now, what's new in SARS-CoV-2 pathogenesis? Next, there's a couple of interesting things that I want to touch on. Now, this virus is going to mutate. This is very interesting, something we're going to need to keep watch on. Um, the first is the minks. Remember, D Denmark had to kill millions of their minks in mink farms because they were infected. And the mutation in the infected SARS-CoV-2 mink mutated so the spike protein change and evaded, would evade our monoclonal antibodies. So, um, you know, it's a worry there. And then if you go to the next slide, so this has now been mapped and, um, oh, uh, the slides got a little mixed up. So there's also another case, if you go back one, please. Thank you. A chronically infected immunocompromised person was tracked and the person could not clear the virus. Just much like we see sometimes in immunocompromised, they don't clear virus as well. But that's, that SARS-CoV virus began to mutate in the person. They were able to know it wasn't a reinfection. It was the same virus. So next. And they were actually able to track this. And I'll just take you to the arrow down there. Those are amino acid substitutions in the spike protein that were occurring um, from this one person's SARS virus. And I think the chronic infection allowed the virus to sort of percolate and continue to select out viruses that would bind better to the ACE2 receptor. So, um, you know, it's something to think about. And the next slide is, I think, more important. Here's the mapping of the mink 
mutation. And if you'll notice, they know it uh, was uh, unique for minks now. Those little black triangles in the spike protein are mutations, changes, and they're different than what we see in human spike protein changes. So the virus is adapting to this host. The worry is that this will become a zoonosis, that other animals similar to mink, which are weasels and other things, could become uh, endemically infected with this virus and the virus would then have a separate reservoir in animals. So we need to keep very close watch on this. And um, unlike Denmark, by the way, the United States has not euthanized our mink farms, even though many are infected. Just be aware of that. So we're gonna to need to watch this um, and uh, I'll talk about the vaccine. I think there's some good news though. We, we're much better at creating new vaccines that need to be modified if there are mutations. Next. Good news too. Uh, remember we've been talking about the fetuses seem to be spared. Interesting data from England where they tracked all stillbirths during the pandemic, as many as they could. There was no increase in UK stillbirths in the worst of the pandemic, despite the fact many pregnant women were infected. I think that made people pretty confident that we're not seeing any sort of fetal infection and fetal demise from COVID. Next. And in this study, which I think is very important, it reaffirmed our practice of rooming in neonates with infected mothers. They found um, was a multi-center study, came out of Italy and others. Um, with 62 neonates born to 61 mothers who were actively infected. They roomed in with appropriate precautions. They had to wash their hands and wear a mask. And um, they were breastfed without problem. And um, no neonate uh, was positive at birth. And only one neonate apparently got infected and follow up and did well. So it appears that rooming in and breastfeeding with appropriate precautions appears to be safe with a very rare transmission to the neonate. And I think this was good news as well um, in, in what our practice has been and the data supporting that practice. Next. All right, so the big news this week where immunizations began worldwide. <clears throat> the UK began immunization with Pfizer last week. Russia and China, by the way, are already immunizing, but we don't have any data. <clears throat> and the FDA hearing on the Pfizer vaccine was yesterday and there will be another hearing on the Moderna <clears throat> mRNA vaccine in one week. Novavax recombinant spike protein vaccine is entering phase three clinical trials. So um, this is all great news. Now I sat in the hearing for several hours yesterday <clears throat> uh, on the Pfizer mRNA vaccine. And I will say um, it was wonderful to sit there. Uh, the FDA was long recognized as the best regulatory body in the world for drugs and vaccines. Um, clearly we were able to see that yesterday. Those of you maybe were lucky enough to tune in. There was a scientific advisory panel who had no commercial interest whatsoever. And Pfizer made their presentation, the FDA did their thing, and there were a lot of hard questions. It was totally transparent. Uh, there was just nothing hidden. Um, we knew what we know, we know what we don't know. And the panel voted, I think, 17 to four to suggest to the FDA that they license it. The FDA will now consider that they most likely will license it. We don't know what rules they're gonna say, but I will say the process worked. Uh, was refreshing to see us perform in science the way we were known to perform worldwide. And, uh, and again, I think it was a role model for um, approval of these vaccines. Next. The Pfizer data looked good. Now, um, they also issued a briefing and you can, it's online, you can get it. 
The efficacy um, for all participants after two doses was 95%, but interestingly, after one dose, it had pretty good efficacy of about 52%. Um, the age difference didn't matter. It was efficacious in older people, which is really important, obviously, in this epidemic. And the participants were diverse in age, race, ethnicity, and sex. Now, there's only 20,000 in each arm, the placebo arm and the vaccine arm, but it's the best we got. And it's a lot of people. Um, and so um, the one thing that I did notice as I drilled down in the data, there was very strong efficacy, but lower than other ethnicities for Asians. No one can explain it. The numbers are not large and it's gonna require further investigation, but it was highly efficacious in that ethnic group as well. Next. This is the cumulative incidence of disease after one dose. Um, just to show you how one dose works, the red are people who got infected. Uh, and um, the blue, and who had placebo, and the blue are people who were immunized. So it was 52% efficacious after one dose. This is a good vaccine. So um, I just wanted to show you that. Again, this is the kind of raw data that we got to see uh, yesterday during the public hearings. Um, so uh, it's just so refreshing to have transparency and be able to make decisions based on data and not, you know, radio static and, and crazy stuff. So next. Now, what about reactions to the vaccine? So 22,000 vaccine recipients, 22,000 placebo, 137 hypersensitivity reactions in the vaccine group. It's less than 1%, but also 100 in the placebo group who apparently got saline. So it's kind of hard to know. Now, there were two hypersensitivity reactions in healthcare workers in England last week who were immunized. Both did well. So it's something we're going to have to watch. And we don't think it's the spike protein production. It's probably some carrier. It could be the lipid. It could be some other chemical that's in the vaccine. And there were very strong suggestions to Pfizer, who's looking at this very carefully, to figure out which element of the vaccine is doing this and then to remove it. So that'll probably be a second generation vaccine at some point, but very transparent data. The most common reactions, though, were uh, your arm gets sore, you're tired, you have a headache muscle pains, and 14% got fever that was significant, 32% chill. So for a day, people are going to have flu-like symptoms, and this was for 24 hours. Next. Now, the pipeline has other vaccines. So Pfizer is the one um, that you see, Pfizer-BioNTech. Uh, it's going to get licensed in the next day or so, I'm pretty sure, in the United States, um, and we'll see what the FDA recommends it for. Moderna, that here, public hearing is in seven days. A very similar mRNA lipid encapsulated formulation. The AstraZeneca adenovirus vaccine, and there's a Janssen one. Uh, I don't know when and how they're going to get in front of the FDA, but they're out there. And then the protein subunit, which is recombinant spike protein from Novavax is in phase three. I'll bet you in January, um, February, that vaccine will also be in front of the FDA. And that might be one also where people are more comfortable giving it to children. Next. So uh, I've changed our theme uh, to the good, the bad, and the weird. Um, this is a movie. Uh, uh, it's a Korean takeoff on the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, you can see the picture. Apparently it got awards from the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, I watched some of the, some of the uh, leads, you know, some pieces of it. It's pretty funny, actually. And, um, and it is a takeoff in American Westerns. It's very funny. So why the good, bad, and the weird? Let's talk about the good and the bad, and then I'll tell you the weird. The epidemic in the United States is a five-alarm fire. It is not peaked, and we have no national strategy to mitigate it. This is unacceptable. 
and going to result in a calamity if we don't get our arms around it. We should expect full hospitals, ICU bed shortages, and increased deaths in the coming weeks. That is what the math is going to do. Holiday travel will exacerbate this epidemic. I already told you my suggestions on that. There is no good reason to travel unless there's an emergency this holiday season. The vaccine era, the good news is the vaccine era is beginning with highly efficacious new technology vaccines. Now I wanna use the word new technology and remind everyone that every vaccine has been new technology. Think about the acellular pertussis vaccine, that was new. Think about the conjugate vaccines for pneumococcus and H flu. They were new in the 70s and 80s. No one had ever linked a protein to a polysaccharide like that. Think about the oral polio vaccine that was attenuated, that was new. So the reality is science has translated for us with many of the epidemic challenges, new technology vaccines and the mRNA vaccines fall into that category. In the weird, during the same briefing that the administration had for the vaccines to say how great this was, Senator Johnson held congressional hearings focused on the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, the lack of efficacy of masks and social distancing, and the importance of not using the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine in the public. So uh, I, you know, you kind of look at that and you just shake your head of some alternative reality, but it is what it is and this is where we are today. I am confident, as I showed you this summer, we will be in a better place. We have a very difficult 90 days ahead of us. We are all together on this and Connecticut Children's will be there to help the entire community through this. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you, John. And uh, you know, this is that that pictogram of the movies is probably the most important part of your presentations. That's why people log in. <laughs> uh, I hope not. But we have two hundred and thirty-four individuals uh, today, which is really wonderful. We're able to convey information, and uh, uh, so thank you, John, for for putting all this together. Now we'll we'll transition to, uh, to Lauren and uh, go ahead and uh, if you can take your mask off, I'll let, let you do that. that. It doesn't work. Senator Johnson anyways, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, so go ahead and uh, give your presentation, then we'll have uh, questions and answers at the end of your presentation. Lauren? Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to be here today. It's really exciting for me uh, to be here and to present on this important information. Um, so I will just advance my slide here. Um, so I picked a special picture here. This is Dr. Ching Lao, our division chief. Um, since we're talking about physician wellness, I figured of our approved uh, pictures, I would pick one of our physicians. So I just want to set the scene a little bit that there was this concern about physician burnout that existed before COVID hit. And when we think about burnout, it, the definition is basically job-related stress in a health practice environment. And there's building literature that um, this burnout exists for physicians and other healthcare providers and is thought to be sort of um, made up of these three components, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a low pers personal accomplishment. And what we find is that um, the symptoms of burnout are related to an increase in depression symptoms and can also be associated with other factors that are concerning, such as increased medical errors, lower patient satisfaction, decreased professional work effort, and higher turnover rates for our staff. Um, some of the stressors that have been identified with burnout include things like uh, the transition to electronic health care, insurance, 
excuse me, insurance and billing issues, uh, that just the patient dissatisfaction or patient surveys that is driving a lot of healthcare today, and also a poor work-life balance. So this all existed and was a concern before COVID happened. Then um, the we have COVID and we have a, a worldwide pandemic happen. So fortunately, there actually, even though there's really important research happening just specifically about the virus, there also is some research happening about how our healthcare workers are coping with the virus and with daily life and professional life in the context of this pandemic. There are a lot of studies that are coming from China. Obviously, that was sort of the original um, site of the, the virus. We are starting to see some data come out of the U.S., and not surprisingly, the symptoms that are being measured and endorsed by our healthcare workers are things like stress, anxiety, depression, insomnia, and feelings of isolation. If we look across some of the studies, there are some common risk factors, which include being female, being a nurse, um, being a provider on the front line. Although there's some interesting data that, that doesn't necessarily increase your stress, that there are plenty of our healthcare staff that are feeling increased stress and anxiety and depression that are not necessarily right on the front line caring for COVID patients. Um, living alone, having a history of mental health, health issues, and your geographic location. So if you are living in an area where there, which unfortunately now is a lot of our country, but um, if you're living in an area where there's higher levels of COVID-19, that does tend to be associated with increased symptoms for our healthcare workers. The most important piece I think for to think about is that there are lots of studies that have identified anxiety about giving patient care and then also the worry that exists about possibly infecting our family, right? So not only do we have the work stress of what we are doing day to day in work, but then we have the worry that what happens when we come home? If we get infected at work, are we bringing that home to our family members? Are we bringing that home to our kids? Could, are we bringing that to um, an older parent that we're concerned about who might have an underlying health condition? And that I think is the thing um, that we wanna sort of focus on. Um, I just want to give a couple of examples of some data. This was one study that happened um, in eastern Pennsylvania, um, and they had questionnaires were sent to all of the emergency providers across um, several hospitals in that area. They had a, about a 40% response rate for the questionnaires that they sent out. And what they did is they had physicians rate their symptoms in that early COVID period, so March 27th to April 17th. And then they also completed questionnaires for how they had felt in the four to six months prior to COVID starting. And what they found was that the physicians were rating feeling just overall less control um, at work, decreased happiness at work. They were endorsing more trouble falling asleep, an increased sense of dread when thinking about the work needing to be done. Interestingly, they were not endorsing more stress while at work, but they were endorsing more stress on the days that they are not at work. And again, it comes up that we have this increased worry about our own health and the health of our families, the people around us, the people that we care about. And I, again, I think that's super important that we don't, you know, prior to the, the pandemic, you might have been able to separate, okay, this is my work stress and I have these symptoms, even potentially of burnout at work. But then when I go home, I can transition into my home life and maybe do some coping strategies and not have that same stress or worry where in the context of this pandemic, that worry is just ubiquitous. If you are at work, if you are in the grocery store, if you're at home with your family, it's always there. I also thought this study was interesting because they added some questions about the time spent watching news and social media. And at that time, early in COVID, they didn't find a significant difference in terms of how much time people were spending on the news and on social media. 
I think that data would be different, especially in our country, if we redid that study during the fall, during our election period, and, and that was just yet another level of stress. Regardless of what your views are, I think everyone in our country just had an added level of stress um, in addition to <clears throat> starting to see that second wave of rise in COVID numbers. Um, there was one study that looked specifically at pediatric providers. Um, and this study uh, was done in China, and it, they had an excellent response rate, actually, of providers returning their questionnaires, um, looking at just general, general demographics as well as anxiety and depression symptoms. So they had almost 85% return rate, which was excellent. Um, and what they found is that, in general, the overall ratings for anxiety and depression were higher than the norms for that population where that study was taking place. When they look specifically at anxiety and they're looking at <clears throat> the level of clinical symptoms, for mild clinical symptoms, it was about 10.5%. Moderate was about 5.7%, and severe was about 1.9%. Similarly, when they looked at depression, mild clinical symptoms were 21%, moderate um, just under 5%, and severe were 3.8%. Again, interesting data that there weren't statistical differences between the group that had COVID exposure, so those, front, those healthcare workers that were on the front line caring for patients with COVID, and for healthcare workers who were not. So this is just, it's happening to all of us, and we know in pediatrics we've had less numbers of cases than they have in our, you know, our adult colleagues have seen, and yet we are still seeing those same emotional concerns. Um, and I think what we need to think about is these are some of the studies from those early days and that um, the early days of study. Fortunately, it's not all bad. We ha do have a little bit of research that's starting to show that there can be some resiliency and some post-traumatic growth. So this is a study that came out of China and Taiwan, and they, it was a study on nurses. Um, the, they looked at rates of burnout, and so the nurses were endorsing some trauma-like symptoms as well as some low to moderate rates of those burnout symptoms. Um, but 40% endorsed levels in the range for probable personal growth on a standardized um, measure of post-traumatic growth. And that's that, that range, probable personal growth, means that they are starting to exhibit some changes in how they, and some adaptions in terms of how they're coping with everything and moving forward and, in, and sort of integrating this into their lives and not letting it impact and, um, their anxiety or their mood. Um, what they did find was that participants working in the COVID units had higher scores across all of these, all of the scales, um, but not, but they still found that those working in the COVID units were showing some signs of post-traumatic growth. Um, the other interesting thing is that there are a lot of articles, not necessarily data-driven, but a lot of articles talking about is there a way that we can use this period to reevaluate those factors that lead to physician burnout? So we know it existed, and now we have a pandemic that is stressing out our healthcare workers. And is there a way to look at that differently and to promote wellness in other ways? Um, there's some interest. There were some interesting review articles um, in, for disciplines like surgery and anesthesiology knowing that some of those healthcare providers had very different lives at the beginning, at the outset of the pandemic. Um, and can we look at that and, and try, as we sort of restart things and as we move forward and as we manage the second wave, can we be more conscious of what we're doing to support everyone and their emotional health um, as we continue to care and, and work through this pandemic? The thing I want to think about is, okay, so if we know that there's some data there, we know that everyone is experienced, and I'm sure all, all of us personally can say, yep, I raise my hand, I'm experiencing more 
um, anxiety across the board. I'm experiencing some more sadness. I'm having more trouble sleeping. Um, and we're sort of in this model of we had this sort of acute thing, acute phase of stress happening initially when the pandemic hit. And now we've really moved into this chronic model, right? This has existed for several months. As our experts have been telling us, Dr. Schreiber reminded us again this morning, Dr. Salazar has been telling us also on our town halls, we're, we're in it, we have to buckle up our seatbelts and we're gonna still remain in it for some period of time. So we have this chronic now stress on us and this worry that is existing not just at work and related to our work, but also related to everything that we're doing at home. So if that exists, what do we do? How do we improve our coping? And what can we do for ourselves to help ourselves get through this and get to that summer picture that Dr. Schreiber? So we go back to the basics. So all of the providers on the call, you know all of those healthy lifestyle things that we suggest to our patients that they need to be doing, regardless of whether they have a chronic health condition or not, these are things we all need to be doing. So we need to be getting sleep. Um, we need to be getting regular exercise. We need to stay hydrated, which I don't know about you, but I have found even more challenging because we always, ha always have a mask on. It's just one more piece that gets in the way of me drinking the water I'm supposed to drink during the day. We need to make sure we're getting good nutrition. Sure, like at the end of a really stressful day, those Oreo cookies sound really great, but we need to balance that out with some really good nutrition to get our bodies um, as healthy as possible. We need to maintain some structure and consistency. This is good for us, it's good for our family members. And to the best of our ability in the time of this social distancing, we need to maintain our social connectedness. Now, I don't expect everyone to go out tomorrow and start a brand new exercise routine and also make sure they're getting to bed every night and getting eight hours of sleep exactly and drinking 100 ounces of water tomorrow. What I think is important is to be aware of these things. And if we're telling our patients and our families that these are the things that they need to be doing to manage their own stress and worry, that we're taking care of ourselves. If we take care of ourselves, the caretakers, then we can continue to care for our patients and families. Um, so is there a place here on this list where you can say, you know what, before the pandemic hit, I was doing a great job. I, you know, I regularly exercised, but then with the pandemic and having my kids at home or, you know, having to um, worry about my mother who's in a nursing home, my exercise routine just got off and I, I lost track and I haven't been doing it. Or, um, you know, I just have been having more difficulty sleeping and so I've been staying up late and I'm going on the computer and I'm going on social media. Are there th little things? Can we start somewhere? Little things that you can do to start improving your general basic health. These are all things that we know will help our bodies and, and manage that chronic stress that we're under right now. Um, for example, here are some stress-reducing coping strategies. Again, can we pick one on the list that we could start with? Is there some, somewhere that you feel like, yep, this is something small that I can tackle? So being creative, are there arts or um, hobbies that you would like to get back to that make you feel better, that improve your mood? Um, getting some support from friends or family. Can we find ways to stay connected? whether it be through FaceTime or Zoom or taking, um, you know, having extra phone calls or um, we have started doing some old fashioned cards with a couple of friends so that we get things in the mail. And that's exciting because that's one of the few things that we can do right now. Listening to some music that makes you feel good. Again, we talked about exercise on the last slide, but this can be doing some actual exercise or just going out and taking a walk and getting some fresh air. Um, 
trying a new yoga class. There are plenty of things that we can do. Um, there are lots of online yoga classes these days, and you can even go on YouTube and there's, you can find almost anything. Since we're home a lot more, can you start some new cooking or baking activities? Is that something that you find um, relaxing and helps you feel calmer? Starting some meditation. Um, and I will, at the end, I have some, a slide about some meditation apps that are free for healthcare workers at this point. But can we start thinking, is that something that we could add into our daily practice? Um, for example, try some meditation before you go to bed at night. That might help with the difficulty falling asleep because it'll help quiet our minds. Can we focus on our breathing and doing um, some diaphragmatic breathing? There's lots of strategies and different ways to do this, but can we take a moment to focus on our breathing and to um, slow that down and really touch base with our body and how we're doing? Um, and even aromatherapy, can we use some scents that make us feel calm? Now, I am, my home is hematology oncology here at Connecticut Children's, and I will say we're really lucky because we have experts in many of these areas in our division. So in our, our monthly division meetings, we have been having um, brief yoga sessions directed by Dr. Eileen Gillen. So we've been really lucky. We, the whole division starts to do some yoga and some stretching. Um, we also have some aromatherapy experts and one of our nurses, Heather Ray, has shown me a little trick where we can spray a little aromatherapy into our mask. So then you're actually doing aromatherapy while you're breathing in through your mask. Take some nice, slow, deep breaths. So we're incorporating a couple of these strategies. Um, I have a colleague in, in Philadelphia who, because of these various work schedules and that her husband doesn't travel the way he used to, is doing a family walk. So a couple days a week, they've sort of altered their work schedule so that the family can get out and walk and, and have that family time, but they're also doing a physical activity. Um, there are lots of ways that we can incorporate our families into doing some of these. So not only are we doing this for ourselves, but we're doing it for our children, or maybe we're taking a socially distanced walk with a neighbor. We live by ourselves and our neighbor lives by themselves, but we're walking together just on opposite sides of the street or keeping that six feet distance. Um, in addition to these, so as a psychologist, I often use a cognitive behavioral approach. I love cognitive strategies. Um, so these are a few of my favorites. Um, one is, can we find three positives or accomplishments for the day? They can be short, simple, basic. They can be about anything. They can be about something that happened at work, something that's happening in your personal life, something that happened socially. Um, and on those really stressful days, they can be super basic. Like I took a shower today. That sometimes is an accomplishment depending on how your day is going. It can be, I laughed with one of my patients. So even if it was a stressful day at work, I had this moment of joy with a patient that I was caring for. Or my family sat down and had dinner together. Perhaps that's not something that you were able to do before, before the pandemic, but if everybody is home, this was a family dinner night that didn't used to happen, but did happen today. Um, and we can take this one step further and really focus on um, what we call gratitude and, and, and just not just thinking of this, but doing some gratitude journaling where we write it down. We think about in the morning, what am I grateful for? Today, I am grateful that I am healthy. I am grateful today that I have the opportunity to talk to everyone and to share this important information. And that helps just shift our mindset to, to be focused on those things that we do have control over and do feel good about. Um, this is probably my most favorite cognitive strategy, and I use it all the time. Um, I'm happy to re reframe for anyone who needs a cognitive reframe. But we want to think about, take a moment. Are there some thoughts that are distressing to you? 
what are you thinking about? Is there a theme or a, a, a specific thought that goes over and over in your mind that every time that comes up, you notice your body starts to feel more tense. You start to feel more anxious. You start to feel more sad. And then we say, okay, can I take that thought and can I look at it from a different perspective? Is there a different way that I can think about this that will not have that same emotional response? For example, oh, this is a, just a terrible situation. We're in a terrible situation right now. Wait, if we think about that first picture Dr. Schreiber showed us of the fire, it's just terrible To Can we shift that to, I'm doing the best that I can right now. Or in my team, my coworkers and I are managing this, this difficult situation to the best of our abilities. Um, some of the parents on the call might recognize this one. Uh, that I have at times my child or my children are having too much screen time. And now I must, you know, that leads to these other right negative thoughts. Well, I must be a bad parent. What are they going to do? They're not learning. Can we switch that to we're doing the best that we can right now as parents? This is we're working with what we've got. Or this is one way that my child is coping with the changes in their life. They're watching their favorite TV show. And that actually is their active coping. Um, so there's lots of different ways. The first step is always identifying the thought taking a step back and saying, is there a way to shift and look at that differently? Um, and then this is another one of my favorites, which is a mantra, thinking about, you know, again, what we think can, can impact how we feel. So this is a simple statement that we repeat to ourselves. I currently have a mantra that includes something that I think and also a, a visualization. So just like Dr. Schreiber this morning was talking about this, he had that beautiful picture of summer 2021. I focus on this is difficult right now. These next couple of months are going to be hard, but I'm, but in the summertime, it's going to be better. We're going to be in a better place. So I visualize my summer activities and being outside and biking and walking, and that's going to be the better place. And they can be super simple statements, even just something simple like I will be fine or this will pass. Or I've been through challenging things in the past. As healthcare providers, we've been through lots of hard things before. And so we can get through this too. Um, I also think if we build some positives just into your practice and your daily routine with your coworkers during the day, can you end a meeting with a positive or a high five moment? Um, we instituted this in our psychosocial meeting for our psychosocial providers within um, hematology oncology. And so we always end our meetings with some positives. And in fact, it's sort of now spread out to if we see each other in the hallway and we think we're having a bad day or we're talking about something that's difficult, we start talking about what positive we might bring up in our meeting. So it's helping us reframe and refocus on the positives even in the moments that we're having that are difficult. Um, taking the time to acknowledge others' work or you know, thanking them for support or offering them support. So when I was telling my um, Dr. Michael Isakoff about how I was doing this talk in our monthly meeting, and I was saying I'm doing it on physician wellness, he said to me, well, what about psychology wellness? Who's taking care of the psychologist? And I said, you're right. I have to do all of these things too. I have to think about what is helping me in my mental health while I'm still helping take care of all of our patients. Um, use the social connections that you already have. If there's a coworker you enjoy talking with or a friend or your family members, is there a way to incorporate that even into your daily schedule at work? We are spreading out our staff within Hemonk and some of the nurses have taken to FaceTiming during their lunch break. They're in different rooms, but they're still talking to each other. 
take advantage of supports offered by your institution or your practice. So, you know, here at Connecticut Children's, we have a variety of level of supports from um, our Ears to Peers, Ears for Peers program that is peer support. So it's other coworkers in the institution across disciplines and divisions that can just be someone that can sit with you and listen and when, when times are difficult to our EAP that can provide some more professional support for lots of variety of stressors. And then can we be creative? Can we find different ways to continue traditions? This is really important during this holiday season. I know many of us are feeling sad about the things that we're not able to, to, to do that we normally would do this time of year, but we, can we find a different way to do something that still brings us joy? It's not the same, but maybe it's something new that we can try. Um, I just a couple of signs that we might um, need a higher level of care. You might need more than just some of these basic coping strategies that you can sort of do on your own. If you're having poor sleep, that's interfering with your ability to do your daily activities. If that's poor sleep is happening multiple days, not just every once in a while. If you're just feeling a complete lack of interest in anything that you used to enjoy. So when I had that coping list before of different things that sometimes people use to cope and you're things on that list you used to really enjoy, but you don't anymore. That's sometimes that's a, a sign that we might need some extra help. If you're having any suicidal ideation, any thoughts that others would be better off if you're not here, or you just don't think that you can do this anymore, absolutely reach out for some help. Um, if you have an inability to get out of bed and accomplish your daily tasks, if it's just a challenge just to get out of bed, we all have a bad day, but if that's happening multiple days, then we need to think about some extra help. If you're, uh, if you're feeling any symptoms of post-traumatic stress, um, intrusive thoughts, negative thinking or mood, increased irritability or angry outbursts and that hypervigilance. If you're having increased anxiety to the point that, an that anxiety is interfering with your daily activities. Or if you're starting to show some signs of burnout and you're feeling disconnected from your work and that you're not satisfied or be able to accomplish things. Or you're, you're sort of disconnected from your patients and that's not typical for you. Um, what I will say is sure, these are signs that indicate a higher, definitely we need to reach out for a higher level of care. However, we're all living through a really difficult time. And so even if you're having some of those mild anxiety symptoms or mild mood symptoms, and you're not, you're saying, well, I don't actually, you know, it's not anything on this list in particular. It's still great to reach out for help. That's why we exist. Um, you know, I, this is a cognitive reframe, right? Psychologists are not just for people who have mental health issues. They're for lots of normal people who are struggling with some daily life issues. And we're all living in the, in the context of struggles that's impacting all parts of our lives. And finally, take advantage of those discounts. There's lots of things out there for healthcare workers right now. Go to Starbucks and get your free coffee. It turns out I have learned that you can even go more than once a day, although too much caffeine might interfere with your sleep and then you're not getting good sleep. But go get a, a free cup of coffee. If you just Google it, lists and lists come up. Um, and as I mentioned before, there are some free apps for meditation and mindfulness practices. So Headspace, Breathe, and 10% Happier are, have all waived their fees for healthcare workers. Thank you so much, and I'll turn it over to Dr. Salazar. Thank you, Lauren. That was terrific. I feel better already, so um, my high five for you is great job to you and everyone in this room, and so that's in my list now. Uh, quick question for you. Um, it, this is from uh, <clears throat> Dr. Jim Wiley. I recall that religious practice is also positive activity to help with burnout and stress, uh, prayer which can also be done remotely. Do you agree briefly? Absolutely. If that is something that you helps you and copes with you, absolutely. Now, we need to do it remotely and socially distanced, 
but your individual practice, the, the prayer that you do every day. And also if you do that, you know, through a Zoom call or some other socially distanced outside uh, prayer. Thank you. Uh, John, there are a couple of questions about the four members who voted against the vaccine. And uh, I don't know if you have any insights uh, you, if, while you were listening of, you know, the reasons they gave um, to vote against it. They may not have. I wasn't present during that part of the deliberations. Can you comment on that? Sure. Um, I don't know if you guys can restart the video. Yeah, we Maybe not. Yeah, go but, ahead. Uh, there we go. Um, you know, from what Meyer saying, I, th I think that they were concerned about um, the younger age groups having very few people in the study and the issue of whether adolescents were equivalent to adults in their immune response. And, you know, it was legitimate. There were probably some other issues as well that they were uncomfortable with. So, but the vast majority voted in favor of it after a very robust and transparent discussion. Uh, so I'm honestly, for me, I will say I'll get the vaccine. Um, it's a risk benefit in my head that goes way far on the benefit side. Um, and uh, I'll see if there's some more questions about that, because I'll spend some minutes talking about what went on in my head. Uh, and I won't get it first wave. Obviously, I'm not in front of uh, hundreds of patients right now, but I will get it when it's available, second or third wave. When the organization thinks it's my time, I will go ahead and accept the vaccine. And I'll tell you why. Let's go through some more questions first, though. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, John. Uh, so re regarding the, uh, the hypersensitivity and allergic reactions, can you comment on that? There are a couple of questions here about the reports from England uh, on, the, uh, on the hypersensitivity allergic reaction. Can you comment on that? You know, I probably know as much as you know, the two England uh, ones were listed as anaphylactoid reactions. So, you know, maybe they had hives uh, uh, and wheezing, I don't know. Um, the 137 hypersensitivity were not separately listed in the data, and I don't know what that meant, but none of them were hospitalized. None of them required extensive therapy, and they all did well. There were no bad outcomes. So as with any vaccine, um, there are elements in it that a small number of people will become allergic to or are allergic to. And as we move forward and millions of people get the vaccine, we can accept, uh, we can expect there will be other very small numbers of issues and we're gonna to need to be vigilant for that. I will say um, the committee also mandated and Pfizer will do this, there'll be extensive ongoing follow-up. The randomized placebo controlled trial will probably continue. It was a big discussion about the ethics of placebo, but I think most people felt that the um, Pfizer needed to continue that. And there will be very close follow-up of people who have the vaccine and what their side effects and all of that is. So, um, you know, this is a first-generation vaccine, but uh, the infrastructure in place to really manage this safely moving forward is pretty robust. John, from Jesse Sturm, are there any data on safety of vaccine for breastfeeding mothers? What would you recommend for staff who are currently breastfeeding? There are no data. But um, it would seem to, guess, again, to me, it's common sense as with most vaccines where we're comfortable giving it to someone who's no longer pregnant. And um, the benefit is the mother won't get ill, potentially transmit it to the child. And the other benefit is some IgA may get into the breast milk and be good uh, for the baby. So I can't give you any data to support it, but at the moment there's nothing showing that we would not give it to a breastfeeding mother. So. That's where it is, um, and uh, we'll see if we get more data in the future on that. 
Great. And uh, Danielle Warren Diaz has asked me where my pajamas are. Well, I, I, I sleep on my clothes because I don't have time to put my pajamas on, Danielle. So thank you for asking. Uh, uh, Rick Auerbach, to you, John, is, can you review the mechanism, the mechanism of mRNA vaccines and what you think are the potential side effects long term based on this mechanism? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if screen sharing is possible. Do you guys want to try it or should I just say it verbally, Juan? Because I actually have that on my computer right on the desktop. Is my mic on? And uh, let's see if we can do it. Can you guys hear me? You're letting me screen share, correct? All right. So let's start from the beginning. See if you can see this. I don't know if you can. Can you see this on my desktop? Uh, not. We see a... Um... Uh, a very busy desktop right now. <laughs> okay. Um, it's not going to let me do this. So fair enough. We'll, we'll get out of it. Uh, so the mRNA vaccine is a fragment of RNA that encodes, <clears throat> excuse me, the spike protein. And uh, it's been sequenced and we know it translates to um, uh, in a ribosome, which translates to the proteins of the spike protein. What's clever about this is usually we give antigen uh, as the vaccine. In this case, we're giving the RNA that encodes the protein antigen. You can see I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> and uh, what that does is it's taken up by our cells. Our own ribosomes translate that to the protein, the spike protein, which is perceived as a foreign protein. And we mount an immune response to it. It's very clever and there are two advantages. One is it's very uh, inexpensive and fast to produce this. You synthesize the nucleic acids for RNA. The other advantage I think is that if this virus mutates, it's going to be very easy to change the RNA sequence to adapt to that and come out with a next generation vaccine. I, I don't think it's gonna be as complicated as with influenza right now because of this new technology. So there's some real advantages. Uh, the data show that it works because it's taken in, you make an antibody response to the spike protein. Now, someone asked me the other day, they said, well, how do we know it just doesn't stay around forever and you make spike protein antibodies be bad for you? RNA is really volatile. And one of the reasons it has to be a negative 80 for the um, Pfizer, negative 20 for the Moderna is that it breaks down so fast. So this is very transient in your body and it's broken down very quickly. And in fact, you can tell that's true because one dose doesn't make you immune. You don't keep cranking out spike protein. You actually have to get a booster dose and you make more antibodies to spike protein. So I'm pretty comfortable that that's the mechanism and it's worked out pretty well. And it appears to be a new technology that's working. But, you know, we have 12 months experience in, in widespread human use with this. And there's always possibilities of other issues. RNA does not get incorporated into the genome. It's RNA, not DNA. There is got brought up in the FDA um, trials. Let's talk about this. One of the reasons not to give it to pregnant women is we've never given RNA to a fetus. And if they happen to be retrovirus infected, there's the remote possibility of reverse transcribing it and incorporating it into the genome. I think it's highly unlikely, but that was discussed yesterday at the FDA hearings, and I think will guide the FDA against licensing it for use in pregnancy right now. Right. Um, Lauren, it, it, just a quick question. Is there a special code for healthcare workers to get the apps for free? No, if you go to them, the directions should be right there. Okay, maybe we can send some, some links. Yeah. Uh, so, so thank you for that. Um, John, a couple more questions, and then we have to log off. Uh, 
there were no immunosuppressed individuals included in the uh, in, in the trial, best we we know. Uh, in, so, can you comment on that? There are many adults who are receiving, you know, for various uh, various diagnoses, uh, immunosuppressive therapy. Any any thoughts yeah, on that? Actually, there actually there were cancer patients included. <clears throat> so, there's a number of cancer patients uh, in both the placebo and the um, vaccine group. The problem is, I don't know what it doesn't list what chemo they got. Were they on biologics? You know, you don't get the granular uh, understanding of what the cancer patients had, but they did give it to cancer patients. And as far as we know, um, you know, there were no invasive infections in any of those people. There were so such small numbers; it was so protective. So all I can say is that much like any other immunosuppressed host, it's better for them to be immune if possible, and if they're able to make antibodies to proteins, it might be more useful for them to be immune than non-immune. But the data were not complete. I couldn't really, you can't really drill down and see what kind of cancers they had uh, and uh, what immunosuppression they were on. It's possible Pfizer has those data. I just didn't see it. Okay. And did they make any comments on uh, individuals who, who, are, uh, who have extreme hypersensitivity and are on EpiPens in terms of recommendation to avoid well, the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, the UK has basically said those of you who use EpiPens for extreme hypersensitivity should not get this vaccine. Um, that was talked about, and it's up to the FDA to recommend or not recommend. I anticipate they're going to essentially say the same thing. Now, this was debated because we have millions of people who use EpiPens for a variety of different hypersensitivities that might have no relation to what's in this vaccine. You know, it may not be any relation whatsoever. But in the um, excess of caution, uh, it might be that you would not give it to these individuals. So let's wait and see what the FDA does. But I anticipate they'll probably tell us not to give it to those individuals. All right, uh, Lauren, quick question. And um, we provide a lot of information, uh, good, bad, and the ugly, like John says, uh, on a constant basis. Some of that is, is, you know, complicated information about mortality and where we're going. Is that beneficial or not beneficial to our healthcare team members? I think every, as is true for everything, everything in moderation. I think having um, some information helps, right? Because then we can say we know what's going on. I think I listen to this as a podcast, not normally in the morning. So I'm thinking about my glass of Air Volta wine on my way home when I listen to this. Um, but I think sort of just general social media news blasts is maybe too much. So everything in moderation is there, are there specific experts like this kind of format where we think that's where I get my information and then I don't take the little blurbs that all of the news media are putting out. And there's a comment from uh, Dr. Moles, Rebecca Moles. Thank you, Dr. Schreiber and, uh, and Air Volta for this important update and acknowledgement of our team stressors. Reminder, the next virtual faculty lounge is next week, December 16th at 12 noon. We'll send a link. Open forum for connection with other medical providers where we share stressors and triumphs and provide peer support. Really outstanding work that uh, Dr. Moles and her team have done. Um, Juan, uh, there, there, is one, there is one question I, I see on the that I think we should address. And go ahead. It, um, can you transmit the virus after getting this vaccine? It's a really important question. The answer is we don't know. We know it prevents disease, but we don't know if it prevents subclinical infection and transmission. So if you are immunized, it doesn't mean you throw your PPE away. We stay with our PPE. It's our first line of defense. It is your armor. The uh, vaccine is another layer in that armor, but you don't want to get subclinically infected and transmitted at home. And we don't know the efficacy of the vaccine for that yet. Pfizer is looking at it, but those data are not available yet. Very important point. Thank you for asking that. 
that the, the vaccine does not give you the virus. And so, if, if you know, I'm sure that was not the, the reason for the question, but um, I have received that question before. It's not a it's not a live virus. It's not the actual virus. It's only mRNA that mimics the ability to produce spike protein. So uh, we are at nine o'clock. I know uh, many of, of you who are in line have to go back to see patients. Uh, please take care of yourselves. Thank you, John and Lauren, for a great presentation today. Be safe, and we'll see you again on Tuesday for Grand Rounds and a week from today again with Dr. Shriver and another panelist. I don't know who it is next Friday, but we'll find out soon. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.